0: BJMO Oncotalks, a podcast series from the publisher of the Belgian Journal of Medical Oncology. Hello and welcome to this podcast. With me today is Dr Kai Keen Shu of the University College London Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust and UCL Cancer Institute to discuss the Keynote 177 trial recently presented at ASCO GI 2021. At ASCO GI this year, you presented updated results of the Keynote 177 trial evaluating pembrolizumab in microsatellite instability high advanced colorectal cancer. Could you first give us an idea on the percentage of advanced colorectal cancer patients who actually display this high level of microsatellite instability? Uh,
1: first of all, thank you very much, Tobias, uh, for inviting me and uh, for this podcast and for, for letting me talk about the Keynote 177 trial. So I think we just first of all have to distinguish Microsal instability is measured as a PCR test and it may not be done as standard everywhere. A lot of uh, oncologists and clinicians and pathologists will do the MMR IHC test, and the presumption is that if you're MMR deficient in one of those four genes, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2, then you're likely to be MSI high. But there's a small percentage where you miss it because immunochemistry is not read. So if we specifically MSI high and you, you say, OK, it's a synonymous thing, we would normally say that actually in the advanced setting, if someone presents with advanced disease, the chance of them being MSI high is probably only around 5%. Okay, Now, that's on extant data. We now know we've got a therapy. We may be testing it much more regularly, and we might find out the percentage is higher. But when we retrospectively look at all the other trials for non-MSI trials and they pick it up, it is only around 5%. What is more interesting is that in the earlier stage settings, the, the MSI is in a slightly higher percentage. So, for example, in stage 2 cardiac cancer, you're more likely to find MMR deficiency or MSI in about maybe 15, even 20% of patients. But in the advanced setting, first presentation of relapse or new presentation of metastatic bowel cancer, probably only around
0: 5%. And how do you assess microsatellite instability in clinical practice?
1: Yeah. So so having said what I just said in the first answer, what I say is it's contextual to what are you trying, why are you doing what you're doing? Okay. So for most patients uh, where I work at uh, University College London Hospital, new patients will come through our tumor board or MDT, and they will come as new diagnosis, colorectal cancer with a colonoscopic biopsy. Now, actually, the latest guidelines, certainly in the UK, is that you should be doing MMR testing on even the colonic biopsies in fact we think that the way to pick up MMR is better on the colonic biopsies than on the resection sample so in terms of how we do it for early stage first presentation we will actually do MMR testing on the colonic biopsies if we don't we can do it on the resection we don't stand these go straight to doing MSI testing okay so MMR testing is cheap and quick you know, when you read it, it's not like a PCR test, it's not binary. But if you have very good pathologists, which I'm sure all um, centers should have, you should be pretty confident it's MMR deficient. Now, if it doesn't quite fit, you know, they are, um, you know, and you think they're Lynch syndrome, or they are, you know, you're now thinking about difference in changing your treatment, we might move actually to MSI testing, and we can do PCR MSI testing. And we use it as a backup if something doesn't quite fit. That's in the early stage. We also do MLH methylation testing, which is not available to everyone, but the standard sporadic MMR divisions will be MLH1 and PMS2 loss. And the vast majority of sporadics will be MLH methylated. And the idea is that if you're MLH1 methylated, you are not lynch syndrome lynch syndrome remember is mutation of one of those four genes we also have platform tests you know with large assays both academic and commercial that can start looking at this thing called tumor mutation burden but that is not standard so we should not be doing tmb as a surrogate to msi for first diagnosis i think mmr test should be a reflex test you shouldn't need to wait for the MDT to do it. But everything else, I think, should be discussed at MDT or the pathologist talking to the
0: oncologist or the surgeon if it's going to make a difference. The results of Keynote 177 were published in the December issue of the New England Journal of Medicine last year. Could you briefly recapitulate the top-line results reported in that publication? The top-line data was, it was powered
1: to a, a co-endpoint of progression-free survival, overall survival, and the second interim analysis has shown improved progression-free survival of 16.5 months on pembrolizumab versus only 8.2 months on chemotherapy. That's the progression-free survival. And um, the secondary endpoint of response rate and duration response have also been reported. And one of the concerns is that the PFS for pembrolizumab is slightly worse in the first four to six months. So more patients were progressing in the first four to six months, then chemotherapy. But then the inflection point happens. And then it really pulls out that they don't progress. Maybe if they do respond, they don't progress after around four to six months. The response rates are driven really by the much better complete responses, 11% versus about three, 4%. And I in the duration of response shows that if you do respond, okay, then, uh, you know, uh, two years, 88% of those patients who are on pembrolizumab are Non-progressing versus only about 35. So the overall survival has been quoted in the in the New England Journal paper. We have said we at that point and the interim analysis date for that was February 2020 that we didn't have enough events. So. We powered to 190 death events. And at that point, we only had, I think, 125. I think the important thing is that still, if you look at the breakdown, less patients died on pembrolizumab, 56 patients have died on pembrolizumab versus 69. So one of the concerns, I think, has been, and then they progress on pembrolizumab, did they progress because they died? Well, overall, it looks like at least more people survived on pembrolizumab than on chemotherapy.
0: And so what was the new data presented at ASCO-GI of this study?
1: So the, the main new data was looking at this expired endpoint of progression-free survival to time from randomization to progression on the next line of therapy or any cause of death. And this is really important because this was a trial that allowed a crossover, okay? That meant the patients on chemotherapy first, okay? if they progressed and they were fit and they had to be re-screened almost, almost as if they were in first line, they could actually access pembrolizumab as part of the trial for, again, up to two years. If they weren't fit or they didn't want to be on the trial, they could go off and have whatever they wanted in second line. And what this trial basically, should, what the data shows is that in total, 59%, 60% of the patients on the chemo arm crossed over to some form of immunotherapy. So of course, crossovers of concern because that might impact on overall survival. So we are looking at progression of survival 2, progression on either whatever they had, that means, you know, off-trial, on-trial chemotherapy, or chemotherapy. And what the data shows is this, that the median progression of survival 2, if you got chemo first, followed by any form of 2nd treatment, was 23.5 months. Whereas if you had pembrolizumab first, then crossed over to any other form of 2nd treatment, it was not reached now, at the two year endpoint, which is our at the moment interim analysis, there's a lot of then um, censoring, but you can see at two years, the progression of reservoir endpoint for 65% of the patients and the Pembro first arm are still um, non progressing, whereas there's only 50% in the um, people who had chemo arm. So I think what we're trying to say here is that although there were some concerns about the rapid progression in some patients on Pembro first, overall, they weren't, and less patients still died as an uh, in internal analysis on the Pembro arm than chemo arm, is that we still rescue all our patients, hopefully, with second-line treatment. And if you had Pembro first, you still did pretty well on second-line
0: treatments. Are there any other immune checkpoint inhibitors under investigation in this setting as well?
1: Well, I think there are many. OK, so as just a quick check, I went on to kind of clinicaltrials.gov and just put immunotherapy in colorectal cancer. And I pulled up some like over 200 studies. And even then, when I tried to pull it, pulled it down and just say only ones that are recruiting and active, um, hardly any of them have reported, by the way, it's still about 95 studies. And, and most of them, most of them are in advanced setting in combination with other immunotherapy modulators, radiotherapy, chemotherapy in the kind of local advanced setting, a few are in the adjuvant setting. Okay. But the keynote one time as a child really is the benchmark. And I think we need to move on very quickly and not just do another me too study and really start saying, okay, can we design studies more where we will do more profiling up front? And I think where the exciting thing now is that we're moving now with the evidence of the knee study and other studies, that we will move actually this more into the knee adjuvant setting, not necessarily the metastatic setting, and using the uh, surrogate markers from knee adjuvant trial designs to then inform what we do, of course, in the advanced setting.
0: And finally, do you see a future role for immune checkpoint inhibition either alone or embedded in combinations for colorectal cancer beyond MSI-high patients? That's the
1: challenge, isn't it? So uh, first of all, within MSI-high, there is a very small group of patients where you won't pick it up who will probably respond to immunotherapy based on a TMB biomarker, which is the pole-e-tated patient. So a completely different biomarker very rare, probably less than 1% of patients, mainly in younger adults, maybe more on the left side. Um, and you won't pick that on a standard MMR test or MSI test. So you'd have to pick that on a specific um, panel test or looking at TMB backwards. But I think that's fine. And that's really interesting, super rare. Um, I think that in fact, beyond MSI high, we are looking at MSS populations, right? And whether within subgroups of MMS, there are patients who will respond to hemotherapy. Now, we have some signal of that actually from the niche trial in the Netherlands, where they showed that of some of the um, MMR proficient operable bowel cancers, I think four of them responded to nivolumab, okay, because they had a genetic signature, I think, co-locating CD8 positive with pd one So that's quite interesting because we can quite easily look at CD8 and pd one on standard biomarkers. Um, then I think the, the other question is whether we go beyond that and do more wider panel testing and look for kind of other novel markers where we can try and combine immunotherapy with lots of things. But again, this is a real issue. There's, we don't really understand immunotherapy yet. And there's so many pathways
0: that could be involved. Dr. Shu, thank you very much for your time and also for your professional insight. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. This podcast was brought to you by the publisher of the Belgian Journal of Medical Oncology. For more talks, please visit bjmo.be. Thank you for listening.